Okay, let's get started. Um, today on Nothing Never Happens, I have with me uh, Dr. T.J. Jurian, who's Assistant Professor in Higher Education Leadership at Oakland University. Uh, T.J. is going to talk to us today about uh, transformative participatory pedagogy, leadership, the roles of faculty and higher education staff uh, in collaboration on campuses to create uh, brave enough spaces for undergraduate and also graduate students. So welcome, TJ, to Nothing Never Happens. Thank you, Tina. It's very, very nice to be here. Well, let's get started. Uh, you have one of the most wonderful educator philosophy statements that I've read lately. Um, and it's on your website. There'll be a link um, on the Nothing Never Happens website, too. Um, and uh, it, you're guided by Grace Lee Boggs, who was uh, an activist in a social justice, human rights activist in Detroit, Michigan. Um, she says, you cannot change any society unless you take responsibility for it unless you see yourself as belonging to it and responsible for changing it. So could you talk about um, what the influences in your own teaching philosophy? Uh, as you are a recent uh, PhD, congratulations. Um, and, um, you know, Paulo Freire and Grace Lee Boggs and D. Fink uh, and others. Um, you know, what, what has led you, what are the models and mentors who have led you to where you are today? Oh, gosh. Um, that question could put us here all day. <laughs> um, it, to be honest, um, when it comes to influences, whether I'm talking pedagogically or um, just my life and how, how I try to live my life out, uh, activism, advocacy, all of that, um, for me, it's like I take a thread from hundreds of different places and people and try to make this warm and protective quilt out of them. So, I mean, mm -hmm. Grace Lee Boggs is definitely a central figure when it comes to uh, my philosophy as an educator and, um, and definitely driven by sort of um, the curiosity uh, that I think uh, she had her entire life uh, to think and talk and, and, and do. Um, Mm -hmm. as well as her insistence for these internal and uh, localized revolutions. But um, I'm also influenced by folks like Angela Davis and yeah. her ability to seamlessly tie liberation movements together, or Ella mm -hmm. Baker, her prioritizing of the leadership by the masses rather than singular leaders. Um, yeah. Janet Mock and Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson and Miss Major and Bambi Salcedo and Genesis Gutierrez mm -hmm. and sort of like their unapologeticness and their resilience and their focus on community uplift. I could keep listing uh, people and organizations. Um, but for me, it's basically activism uh, and, and people and artivism uh, as well. Yeah. I guess my strongest uh, theoretical influences, if I start thinking about it and listing them out, come from women of color activists, mm -hmm. um, especially queer and trans women of uh, color activists, some of mm -hmm. whom would probably describe themselves as scholars and academics and some who wouldn't. Um, I think it's, for me, it's cultural workers of all kinds that inform and inspire my worldview more than anything else. 
Yeah, you're you're able to bridge um, between, you know, kind of higher education student affairs work and uh, being an educator and a, and faculty, mm-hmm. um, and so you're seeing, you know, what it looks like on on either side of that, where in a lot of institutions there's a big divide uh, between mm-hmm. the two. You know, faculty have their own. Um, have their own lives and then staff are doing something entirely different with students and that that middle place where there's a coming together um, is not as often as it probably should be. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I found that in my own teaching career I've kind of gone in and out of, of working with staff on, on various um, coalitions and activisms. Uh, so you talk about activism and artivism. Um, we're in a particular time right now since um, they call it, you know, 11-9 instead of 9-11, you know, to um, talk about the election last year or the day after the election. Uh, so how is it doing this kind of activism, you know, currently in the, in the current state of uh, transgender laws being passed, you know, in Texas and other places, you know, the struggle being political and social and cultural and also economic, um, but, you know, a real issue of human rights. Right. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) See if I can get my question out. Uh, (laughs) That, you know, I think doing it now, I mean, we've got real opportunities to make changes, and this is what... uh, Another Grace Lee Boggs quote from your statement um, where she says, Each of us is called upon to embrace the conviction that despite the powers and principalities bent on commodifying our human relationships, we have the power within us to create the world anew. So what kind of opportunities uh, are you seeing now, you know, in the midst of some really sort of apocalyptic landscape, certainly, um, what's like on the horizon in terms of activism uh, in higher ed that you see? Um, I think what I see in, in higher ed specifically, and um, I appreciate you bringing up sort of the the divide and the siloing uh, between staff and faculty at times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the potential that I see is that there, the number of faculty who study higher education um, or who used to be student affairs practitioners hmm. uh, is constantly growing. Those, those these programs are growing and uh, expanding in lots of different ways. Um, and uh, I'm partially heartened by that because um, we, these are folks that sort of know that divide very intimately, have crossed it in um, lots of different ways. Um, mm-hmm. So partially heartened by that in, uh, in the campus world. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about why for that. But when I'm mm-hmm. also... Um, especially heartened by is um, how uh, some folks, uh, definitely not uh, necessarily a plurality, some folks within the higher ed world um, are beginning to sort of shed their rosy-colored spectacles about higher education. Um, And what I mean by that um, is that a lot of folks, if uh, you sort of talk to them as to why they went into higher education, um, why they decided to pursue student affairs as, as a field, um, they'll speak to really great experiences that they had as students. Mm-hmm. Um, mentors that brought them in, um, 
about orientation, being an orientation leader, being a resident assistant, all these different uh, experiences uh, that then propelled them to think about how do I want to contribute uh, to, um, you know, making the college experience for others uh, as great as mine was. Um, yeah. And so oftentimes really well-intentioned, um, really wanting to do good, but not necessarily seeing how the vessel and the context of higher education itself mm -hmm. is so incredibly oppressive that it's not just about bad apples um, or uh, bad actors within within administration or leadership, but that the entire uh, core uh, is, is rotten in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. And as we are more willing to sort of let go of those rosy-colored spectacles and be able to sort of see everything behind the, the curtain, um, mm -hmm. we are much more capable of, of doing good, of, of actually uh, deconstructing and reconstructing uh, different ways that higher education can exist. Mm -hmm. um, and even beyond sort of the staff and faculty silo, uh, also mm -hmm. the, the more important uh, sort of silo is, is breaking down the campus and community one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah and making those bridges so that we're, we're not continuing to just function within our own little bubble and thinking that we're, we're doing um, massive change by just changing something, uh, some policy on our campus. Yeah, exactly. And I've seen, I've been teaching at this, at my institution almost 30 years. And I was in the first group of students from Agnes Scott, it was only students, it was a group of about hmm, less than a dozen of us who went to Atlanta Pride for the first time. And we, uh, I was sent with my privilege <laughs> to go get the college, a college banner and we were denied. So we had to make one on a computer and, the, and this really dates it. It was, you know, the printer, we had to tear off the edges. <laughs> and so, uh, and now there's quite a presence. Um, I mean, it's a thing that, you know, people don't even question um, if we're going to be at, at the Atlanta Pride Parade. Um, and I've, I've seen the, a similar thing happen with pronouns. Uh, I learned it at a United Students Against Sweatshop um, conference, you know, a dozen years ago. And so this is also, you know, some of the connection with community and community activist and movement building groups that are, that's so important. Uh, now it's, you know, if I forget to do pronouns in the class, thank goodness there are students who will step up and say, oh, we forgot to do pronouns. Uh, but my question about all that is uh, institutions who commit to a more intersectional um, inclusiveness around trans issues in particular, uh, how do we get below the, you know, beneath the surface level on that so that, oh, you can do, you can do pronouns in a class, but is, are, are trans uh, queer voices represented in the, in the syllabus and not just in a tokenized kind of way? Uh, so where do you see the getting beyond the surface. I, I definitely appreciate you bringing up this question and I'm glad that we're talking when we are because um, I've uh, gotten exposed a little bit more to the work of uh, Romeo Jackson who is uh -huh. a graduate student at the University of Utah. Um, mm -hmm. and 
Romeo's doing a lot of really good thinking and writing uh, around the practice of pronoun asking, and I got to have a quick peek at it. Hmm. Um, so I'm excited to sort of see their work come out so more folks can engage with it and be pushed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, what Romeo is doing, and this is going to be an incredibly reductionist summative way of putting mm-hmm. their complex thinking about this, um, but what they're doing is pushing us to think about the limitations that institutionalizing pronoun asking has. Yeah. Um, and I'm particularly going to pull on uh, one, one thread of it, which is seeing this practice as some sort of point of, a, of arrival. Um, mm-hmm. right? if, I, if I ask people's pronouns and make sure I use them and put my pronouns on my name tag or my email signature, mm-hmm. then I'm calling attention to the fact that I know that there are trans people in this world, that, uh, that there are more than two genders, or that I shouldn't assume people's genders based on my interpretation of their appearance, Yeah, uh, just, which is, you know, great sort of mm-hmm. uh, things to call attention to, but that's the thing. It's a fundamentally performative act, oh. right? Uh, it, it, it just does that. It calls attention to what I know and think. It, mm-hmm. um, and it does do some things like validating folks um, who want to be asked uh, when they're usually just misgendered. Um, mm-hmm. And it can even be revolutionary, right, depending on the context, like uh, Agnes Scott in a women's college where these mm-hmm. Everyone is, is a woman, and so everyone responds to she or her. Um, but it's also not anywhere near enough, uh, really, and it um, doesn't dismantle uh, compulsory, compulsory cisgenderism or what mm-hmm. Dr. Zanini calls compulsory heterogenderism or wow. the gender binary, right, or any of these structures that make the pronoun asking practice an exceptional act, right? Um, it, it made me think about the fact that uh, there are languages that don't have gendered pronouns. Um, I grew up in an Armenian household, mm-hmm. and in Armenian, in, in our language, we don't have different pronouns for different genders. We just have one set of third-party mm-hmm. pronouns. And yet, Armenian communities, culture um, is incredibly cis-heteropatriarchal, mm-hmm. right? The absence of gendered pronouns hasn't meant that gender hierarchies and gender oppression doesn't exist within our, our families and our institutions because gender is everywhere. Yeah. And it's not the presence of gender that's a problem, um, but rather um, how, how many do we recognize and, and what are the hierarchies within um, and the issue of overvalorizing masculinity and manhood and very specific uh-huh. versions of those things and our demonizing and violence towards queer genders and femininities and womanhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you also asked about sort of intersectionality, um, the, the place I went to was this experience I had when I was at Vanderbilt University. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I'm faculty, I can call out institutions, right, and not worry about it. That's right. Uh, <laughs> I, I was working in there in the LGBTQI center on campus uh, at the time, and it was around the time I was about to leave. Um, and there was a committee uh, of folks that was comprised of colleagues from different parts of the university, and they were interviewing candidates for a position in the center. I can't remember if it was going to be mine as I was leaving or some other new position. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they ended up picking three individuals to bring to campus for the final round. So right away when I sort of saw the names and looked up the folks. Um, I wasn't on the committee, so I just wanted to do like my own little investigation. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed that all three were white. Right? Mm-hmm. 
so there was already this dynamic playing out around race and yeah. because I'd been the first um, person of color who had ever worked at the center mm-hmm. um, and I was about to leave um, I was very concerned with the fact that it was going to be an all-white space again um, mm-hmm. and then when each of these individuals were on campus um, they each had an opportunity to meet with students um, like a lot of higher ed interviews go, right, so that students can have a say in this process. Um, When I got to talk to some of the students, it was very clear that there was this one person in particular that they were really excited about, uh, more so than the other two. And this person happened to be a pretty genderqueer presenting woman, and she had a number of visible piercings and tattoos and carried herself in a pretty assertive, confident manner, Mm -hmm. right, what maybe some people would call masculine. And what was also clear to me after hearing from some of my colleagues who were on the committee um, and and also other staff who just participated in interviews, it was clear that there was this visceral discomfort uh, with this person. Hmm. I I just could sort of see body language shift, um, faces tense up a little bit, Hmm. uh, and folks couldn't really name why they didn't think she was the right candidate. they just kept saying things like "not the right fit." Oh yeah, uh, and, <laughs> you know, fit. <laughs> yes, such an overused and oppressive construct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, so, in this scenario, right, um, no matter who the committee picked out of the, the final three people, there would be inclusion, which is um, the word that we're supposed to love and and mm-hmm. go for, right? Because there would be the addition of a queer identified person, mm-hmm. uh, but it would be a white gender-conforming presenting queer person Hmm. that didn't stand out, um, that didn't elicit discomfort in an institution that is incredibly binary in its gender conception, right? And the idea of having to be confronted with some sort of very visible reminder of that and a very visible challenge to that conception, and honestly, to be liberated from the confines and limitations of, of that conception, was what pushed the clear student favorite of the three candidates into the, re- the reject category, hmm. right? And, and, and for me, uh, I think uh, this speaks to sort of uh, institutional structures of, of cisgenderism and heterosexism um, and, uh, and racism and all of these things as to why inclusion for me is not necessarily a goal. It's not good enough. Yeah. Um, and... It's, it just maintains the structure as is and makes people feel really good um, about what they've done and able to sort of pat ourselves over the back. Um, but for right. me to work towards real democratic and emancipatory campuses, mm-hmm. societies, we just we have to really deconstruct and reconstruct the very structures that resulted in exclusion in the first place, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for that. Um, because we, we tend to cloak oppression in a certain kind of liberalism Mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, So institutions are always, you know, slouching toward these um, more liberatory and emancipatory models. And what we're seeing, if we can get back to the issue um, of women's colleges, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you saw the the big sisters, as they're called, in the Northeast first begin to wrestle uh, with issues of trans policy, and and finally my own institution in the South, and just recently Spelman College has come out with a trans policy. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, just kind of inch by inch. But those policies that may be, uh, you know, on the, on the side of, as, as we talked about, the siloed, you know, student affairs and campus life. Um, and I'll, I'll give the example of my own field of religious studies. There is a traditional, you know, like in, in many uh, disciplines in the humanities and social sciences, a traditional theories and methods course that if you look at the main textbooks of theories of religion, uh, it's it's mostly dead white European men, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it barely uh, inches into the 20th century. Uh, and so, um, you know, can faculty, uh, you know, ha- I mean, we, we certainly have the privilege to get away with doing things the same old way, right? But how do, how do we begin to build a movement that calls out uh, and reminds even those of us who are semi-conscious about these things, uh, you know, that we have to, we cannot uh, teach these things anymore without including, you know, queer theory. Um, you know, there's, you know, and not just Foucault, <laughs> but uh, History of Sexuality, Volume 1, but, you know, and not just Butler's gender trouble, which is important, but, you know, to really go, really honor the voices that are shaping and uh, pushing the field, uh, whether it's religious studies or, or sociology or psychology, whatever, uh, pushing pushing us forward. Um, we do a disservice to our students when, you know, the voices that we hear are homogenous, right? But how do we, I mean, what would you say to faculty um, who say, well, there's, there's not room and, you know, my textbook does include, you know, has one chapter on feminist and maybe one on post-colonial, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we have time to get to it in the semester. I mean, that, that's pretty much a common um, thing that's happening in, in, college, in undergraduate education. Uh, so what do you say to faculty? Um, in terms of why we need to, uh, you know, be more inclusive, but inclusive in the ways that you're talking about that really deconstruct and reconstruct um, uh, issues of freedom and and human rights. Yeah, um, I appreciate you sort of uh, bringing up uh, the there is no room um, argument. Um, and I think this is where I, I appreciate uh, Fink's work around around curriculum and how to approach uh, curriculum and, and syllabi and all of that. Um, and, I, that, and so that, that's where I'm going to go a, uh, a little okay. bit with this one. Oh, good. Uh-huh. For me, the there is no room um, conversation tells me that uh, for, for someone who, uh, who's an educator, they believe the education is, is in the content and mm-hmm. not not in the facilitation of that content, not in the dialogue, not in the application of it, um, but rather that our jobs as, as, as professors or uh, educators of whatever kind is to just give information, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What Freire calls the banking method, mm-hmm. that if we just give all, these, all this information to people, they're learning um, and they're learning the right things. Um, and that's, that's not education to me, that's just, that's just reading. Uh, mm-hmm. I, can, I can read outside of a classroom. Um, I, don't, I don't need someone to like facilitate that process for me. Yeah, um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So when we're saying there is no room, that, that means we're making also some choices about what is, um, what is valuable and what matters. Um, and it tells, it tells people a lot about our framework and our approach um, to mm -hmm. different content. What, is, what are we prioritizing and who are we saying is the normative voice, right? Not even saying it's the white voice or the cis voice or this voice or mm -hmm. that voice, but rather just the normal voice, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, and the one that ha everyone has to hear. Um, and then what are the add-ons? Mm -hmm. um, what, what are the things that I, I need to sort of figure out and make space for or add as a recommended reading, um, a little extra reading, uh, yeah. more than what you, sh uh, you should know, uh, rather than just starting from that place. Um, kind of saying, you know what, let me just sort of reconstruct this for, for a minute. All, all of these things are really old, or I've been doing this in the same way for the last five years or what have you. Mm -hmm. What if I just scratched it? What if I don't use the seminal text? What yeah. if I mm -hmm. uh, start, start bringing in blogs and uh, YouTube uh, videos from, uh, from people talking about their own experiences and perspectives and mm -hmm. sort of broaden my conception of what even is pedagogy and education? Um, what what knowledge production looks like and that it's not just journal articles. Um, yeah. So how, how can I just sort of really mix things up and have it speak to students in different ways? Because um, the other thing that um, I think that, that speaks to is the fact that we all know that um, students respond to all kinds of different um, learning methods um, and yet we give them the same stuff in the same ways all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's really helpful. Um, so for cisgender faculty uh, who are, you know, trying to mix things up and, and have other voices and other voices that um, through YouTube videos and blogs and, and articles and books speak for themselves still, uh, to borrow the title of this one book on uh, pedagogy, how do we uh, teach what we're not? Mm -hmm. and um, not do harm <laughs> and or, or co-opt or uh, bungle it in some way um, I think for I think the first step might be to let go of the, of the conception that we're not going to bungle it um, <laughs> and um, exactly <laughs> yeah and and just take it for granted that we are going to mess up uh -huh. uh, <laughs> and rather lean into the vulnerability of the mess Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I think it's, again, this, this misconception that because we're faculty, because we're in the front of the room, we're somehow the expert uh, in the room. Um, yes, <laughs> exactly. And so, right. And, and so we can only talk about the things that we absolutely 100% know about. And um, if we talk about uh, anything, we have to present it in a way that uh, shows people uh, that we're the experts and can answer all the questions and mm -hmm. all of this stuff. Um, and so we pretend we know um, instead of um, uh, letting go of authority and mm -hmm. yeah. broadening, broadening the, the bounds of, of knowledge to, and, and expertise to not just be held by us, um, but actually doing the work that it takes to um, have students construct the classroom with us uh, to, to make the, mm -hmm. the learning the co-creative uh, process. Um, and actually saying, you know, uh, when we when we do mess up, not if we do mess up, when we do mess up, um, actually saying thank you 
um, so someone who brings it up and and saying, you know, uh, I'm I'm glad you uh, you brought that up. Um, I'm I'm gonna do some thinking about how I can uh, address this. Um, mm -hmm. If you have uh, if you have any suggestions or want to work with me on it, I'm um, willing to hear it. I'd love to to work with you, but I'm not gonna put that burden on you because uh, yeah. I am the person responsible for the, exactly. for the classroom. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it's yeah. doing all of these all of these little things that. Um, show us to be human beings um, mm -hmm. that allow us to just be vulnerable and uh, teach uh, uh, each other and students how to how to model um, apologizing, um, yeah. how to how to model humanity, how to how to model working in solidarity with people. Mm -hmm. um, I think when the, our practice of teaching is not um, necessarily what we're preaching about. Um, how to exist in the world, there's that mismatch and students are not going to hear us, they're not going to trust us. Yeah. Yeah. So what uh, you've um, just graduated from being a graduate student also. Mm -hmm. um, so what does this mean for graduate education? Because I'm hearing from uh, a lot of my former students who have gone on to do PhDs uh, in religious studies or in other fields, uh, that graduate education has not um, even begun to think about modeling, you know, a sort of Ferran uh, democratic model of, you know, students co-constructing, that they're still um, very much, especially at the Ivy League, um, and I guess Vanderbilt would be a, a mini Ivy there, uh, that you were you were at, but also Loyola and, and others, uh, big institutions. Um, so, you know, what, where is graduate education? I mean, because what we're seeing is um, an, an empowerment of graduate students. You know, they've empowered themselves to unionize uh, mm -hmm. in terms of teaching assistants. Um, and, you know, it, it, especially at Yale, that's being blocked by the president. Uh, so, um, you know, there, there seems to be a, a resurgence in terms of, uh, let me see, um, movement building on, on behalf of uh, graduate students and then the faculty forward movement with uh, contingent faculty and others, where the pedagogy is not consistent with that. Um, hmm you know, that kind of activist movement. There's no activist pedagogy, right? Does that make sense from what mm -hmm. I'm saying? There are some. There are some folks who are, you know, um, committed to this um, kind of pedagogical theory and practice. That's the end of part one of our podcast interview with T.J. Jurian on transformative pedagogies. In the next half hour, we're going to be talking with T.J. about graduate education and models for uh, trans pedagogy that are on the cutting edge. Stay tuned. Welcome back to part two of Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. Our conversation today is with Dr. T.J. Jurian on transformative pedagogies. Mm -hmm.